I wonder if everybody here, top balcony, middle balcony, would do something for me that you're able to do in the next couple of minutes. And I said, everybody. Everybody means everybody. I wonder if you would do this for me. It's easy to do. I wonder if you will now commit to do this with me in the next couple of minutes, everybody. Who would do that? Would you lift your hand? You trust me? Some hands in the back aren't up. I'm looking. I can see. I've had my eyes repaired. If you will, leave your hand up. If you would do that, some won't do it. You don't trust me. Thank you, sir. All right. I want you to repeat after me eight words. When I am weak, then I am strong. I think everybody did that. Let's try it again. When I am weak, then I am strong. Does that make any sense at all? It's a paradox. Weakness, strength. When we're weak, then we're strong. Doesn't that sound like nonsense? Silly statement? You can't explain it. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's the one thing I want you to take home with you following this experience of worship. In worship, we have music, we have prayer, we have offering, we have praise, we have conversations all before and after and sometimes during, but I want you to take home just one thing, absorb it, understand it, and apply it, and your whole life will be radically different. When I am weak, then I am strong. It took the Apostle Paul a long, long time to understand that, to get that, and to put it into his life. But once he did, just exactly what we were saying about victory, the same will be with you and with me if we can just comprehend when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul established the church at Corinth. I've been right there to Corinth. I want you to look exactly where it's located. Corinth is there on a little isthmus connecting southern Greece with northern Greece. And that little isthmus there, now they have a canal through the Corinthian canal. 
and they had a city there that connected the uh, Aegean Sea with the Adriatic Sea, and ships would go through that area. Before they had the canal, they would take a vessel there, unpack it, and they would take it across land, and the other vessel would pick it up on the other side because it took a long time to go around the point there and to go around the cape there at the bottom of southern Greece was one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the world, and ships would wreck and go down over and over again. So therefore, they went to Corinth. Corinth became a thriving city. When I was there, it was nothing. And, and I looked at it, I saw the canal that went through, and I, there's a little hill there you can't see. I climbed that hill, and that's where the Panmanian Games began, which was a precursor of the Olympics. And I went in that field and ran about around where they first had the early precursor of the Olympics, about a quarter of a mile, just to say, I did that. Right there above Corinth. In Paul's day, Corinth was a thriving metropolis. They had people from all over the world, every background, every race, every belief, every nationality. It was Houston, Texas, with a solid sprinkle of Las Vegas on top of it. Quite an important place on the map for trade, for activity. Many retired Roman soldiers would go and they would live in Corinth because it was the hub of that part of the world. So Paul, having invested so much in Corinth, went there and established, of all places, a church. Can you imagine trying to establish a church in a place like that? They never heard about Jesus Christ. They were not seeped in Judaism. But Paul went there as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he established a vital, powerful witness for Christ, the church at Corinth. And as he put that church together, he had great pride in what they had become. But years went by, and he heard rumors and got letters to the effect that some, as he called them, super apostles had showed up in the church at Corinth. And these super apostles were presenting a Jesus that was contrary to the Jesus that Paul had met and knew and taught. And therefore, there was division in the church. And you can read in 1 Corinthians, an interesting story of how evidently they had written letters to Paul and said, we've got a problem in the church. What do you do about incest? That's a pretty big problem. What do you do about getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table? Now, there's a problem. Well, what do you do about Christians suing each other and exploiting each other? So all these questions were asked in 1 Corinthians, and Paul answered them. But in 2 Corinthians, they call that the severe gospel. Because now Paul is speaking out against these so-called super apostles who showed up in the church with all their credentials and all of their background saying they are way above Paul. They were saying, well, Paul established this church. Let me tell you what a church ought to be. And they gave their credentials, and they talked about visions they had. They talked about how God means for everybody to be healthy and everybody to be wealthy and everybody to be wise. And boy, that's an appealing word, isn't it? 
Boy, you know, if I'm sick and I have enough faith, boom, bam, I'm, I mean, that's a strong thing. And so you see division in the church. And Paul writes a letter to them because they were slandering his credentials. And one way they slandered him is interesting. They said, Paul is a blue-collar guy, and true Greeks are white-collar people. What does that mean? In Israel, if you had a profession, you were a carpenter or you were a bricklayer or you were a farmer or whatever you did, that was considered to be an honorable thing. Those that worked with their hands earned their own living. In the Greeks, that was the nobodies. In the Greeks, you had to be born into a family with royal connections, or you had to be born into a family that was highly educated, or born into a family that had great wealth or property. And this was a white-collar crowd. So these super apostles, they said, we represent the white-collar crowd. Paul represents the blue-collar crowd. And what a difference that is. You can't pay any attention to him. He's an illegitimate apostle, and we are hypermen. We are super apostles. And the church was overwhelmed. All the ecstatic experiences these men had had, and they were all together confused. And Paul writes them a letter. <laughs> That's 2 Corinthians. By the way, this is what we're going to be teaching and preaching all through the next year and over the next year. We'll call the series First and Second Houstonians because we got a lot in common with Corinth in their culture and their lifestyle. Make no mistake about it. So we're going to be dealing with First Houstonians, First Corinthians for a while, then we'll move into Second Corinthians. But I'm going to just introduce this by how Paul dealt with heresy, how he dealt with these phony, false, super apostles, as they call themselves. He, first of all, sets out his credentials. I want you to see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. These super apostles said, well, we're just Jews like you've never seen before. And Paul said, beginning with verse 22, talking about the super apostles, he said, are they Hebrews? Huh. So am I. Are they Israelites? Paul said, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? He said, I speak as a food. I am more. Now, Paul, if you read the 10th chapter, 11th chapter, he is struggling. Arguably, Paul is one of the most brilliant men who's ever lived on the planet. You can argue that from a secular perspective. One of the most brilliant individuals who ever, and he is so gifted with the pen. But you read these chapters, you can see he's struggling for words. I mean, he is grappling. He, he's saying, I don't want to boast. If you boast and put yourself up big, you're a fool. And he said, I don't want to do that, but I've got to establish some credentials to show my credibility to present the truth of God in Christ to the church in Corinth. And he said, man, as far as my background as a Jew it is above any background you could name. All the way back to Abraham. Perhaps he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. He said, I've got all those bases covered like nobody could equate anything else better than what I have. He's boasting. And then he gives his 
story, his biography, and this is not how you and I would present our dossier if we wanted a job. You know, I've read a lot of people who tell about their background applying for jobs, and I've never read any dossier someone says about, this is what happened to me, and this is what I happened, and why I got fired. You don't hear that, do you? But Paul goes and writes his background. No question he's a thoroughgoing, completely Jew, but then he looks, and this is all listed here in the latter part of the 11th chapter, and I'll just hit it. He said, from the Jews, I've been whipped five times, uh, 40 stripes, mount a son. He said, I was beaten. And he said, once I was stoned, that was in Lystra where he's left to be dead. He said, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was in the sea. Think about that. In journeys often, in perils in waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils of false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things that come to me, my daily concern for the church. I'm telling you, he was writing this to show his credential to the church at Corinth. It's not what I'd have put down. <laughs> I wouldn't extol all the suffering and privations and tough times he's had, but he did. And then he presents the last one, and it really is strange to me. The latter part of chapter 11, Paul says, in Damascus, he's talking about all these hard times, in Damascus, the governor, Artus the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes when a garrison designed to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped their hands. He said, I was a fugitive. They shut down the whole city of Damascus, and he said, they let me down. I was let down. So here we have it. Paul is trying to ascertain his true apostleship and authority in Corinth without being boastful. And then Paul runs us through three things. And this is so powerful for us to understand, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He tells us, first of all, his heaven experience, heaven experience. And then he tells us his thorn experience. How about that? Then he tells us his grace experience. And from those three experiences of Paul, if we extrapolate from that, led by the Holy Spirit, it'll help us understand that thing that we've all recited twice already in this time of worship. Weakness is a prelude to strength. Look at it. Here he tells us his heaven experience. It, it is really something. Chapter 12. Second, Houstonians, it is doubtless and not profitable of me to boast. I will come to visions and revelation of the Lord. And then he tells a story of visiting heaven in the third person. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I'm the one, but he 
talks in the third person, and he talks as if he uses the phrase, a man in Christ. Stewart has written a, a biography of Paul. He called it a man in Christ. All through the letters of Paul, you see that's who he was, a man in Christ, a man in Christ. And he tells it as if he's looking at another person, though we know he's talking about himself, trying to be somewhat modest, talking about a man in Christ. He said, this is the experience a man in Christ had. He said, I know a man in Christ, verse 2, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one, I was caught up in the third heaven. (laughs) A man in Christ. Paul, 14 years ago, now understand this. Paul had never referred to this experience before this moment. 14 years had gone by since he was caught up into heaven, and we're going to see the word there is paradise. Paradise is a Persian word. It's a picture of a walled-in garden where a Persian king would take somebody who was special and invite them to come into the garden with him. Oh, to go in the garden with the king of Persia. The beautiful magnet, that was a special honor that someone would be given. And so we see the picture. Paul says, I was taken up into the third heaven. What is the third heaven? We have the atmosphere. We have the ionosphere, the stratosphere. The third heaven is in another dimension outside of anything we know in the creative order of the universe. It is with God. Paul went into the presence of God. I was taken up. I was caught up. I like the phrase. We just read in the latter part of the 11th chapter. He says, I was let down, a fugitive of the wall. And now he says, but I was caught up. When did this happen? 14 years ago. Already Damascus Road experience, he saw the resurrected Lord. Already the, the vision came for him to go to Macedonia and preach the Gentiles. Already an angel had spoken to him when there was a storm in the sea and said, don't worry, you're going to make it out. He'd had all these experiences, but this one big experience he'd never written about, he'd never talked about in the very presence of the living God. Third heaven, paradise. What a moment. When did he have this experience? 14 years ago, that would be about 42 A.D. That would be after he had been disgraced. He'd had Damascus Road experience. He'd preached. They'd paid no attention to him in Damascus. They'd been suspicious of him in Jerusalem. He went out to the desert for three years. I think in the desert, Paul was putting together Old Testament prophecy that he knew so completely with what would happen in Jesus Christ, showing how Jesus fulfilled all that prophecy. And then he goes back and he's teaching truth in Damascus. That's when they said, we can't handle him. He'd go to the synagogues, those scholars said, he's too strong for us. And they put a contract out on him. You know what that is? Kill him, take him out. That's when he was let down over the wall. That was when he went home to mother to his hometown, Tarsus. And that was when he had this experience that he'd never told anything about. When he was taken up into the very heavens 
with the Lord God Almighty. Let down the wall, nothing. Then he was caught up. A low moment, God caught him up. And he was there in Tarsus probably 12 years plus, a nobody. We didn't know what was going on. But this gives a hint. But he had that encounter with the living God. Now, he goes on to comment on that magnificently. He says in verse 5, of such a one, I will not boast. He said, I'm not boasting of this. By the way, he doesn't tell us much about that encounter. He says, and heard expression words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet not of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. He's already listed the hardships. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, but I will speak the truth. This is the verse, listen. But I refrain lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. This is where a lot of people get messed up. Paul said, man, I had this supernatural experience, but I can't tell you about it. It is too sacred. There is the shyness of holiness. The shyness of holiness. It was so sacred. It was so intimate. It was so filled with Shekinah, with the presence of God. He can't even talk about it. He's asked not to talk about it. He doesn't. And this is where so many times we get fooled in the church. I know people who are church leaders, and they use the vocabulary of God told me. Be careful with that one, folks. Oh, they used vocabulary was, I was with God, and I came into his presence. And they used those ecstatic, supernatural experiences to have authority over you and over me. Who's going to argue when somebody says, I was with God and God told me? I know people who run churches like that. The preacher gets in a problem. He says, well, God told me. Paul said, I don't operate like that. He said, this holy experience is so sacred. By the way, you read biographies and autobiographies of saintly men and women through the ages. When they have had these supernatural experiences, they don't tell us about it, and they're very reticent, and we know about it sometimes only when someone who writes their autobiography after they're dead. It is holy ground. Holy ground. Paul doesn't tell us about it. He said, I, I can't speak about it. I, it's beyond anything I can express. He talks about words like inexpressible. He said, I want you to judge my leadership on the basis of my life and the basis upon I, what I teach. See, these super apostles were coming in there. They're, well, I've been with God. I've had these visions. I know all about it, and I'm right there with the Lord. And when I teach and when I speak, I'm far superior to the apostle Paul. He's a redneck, and we're white collar. My goodness. Paul says, no, 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 no. We have these holy experiences. Don't get me wrong. God speaks. God leads. God directs through the Scripture. And through an event, oh, yeah, that's real. I'm not throwing that out the window by any stretch of the imagination. But we don't use that to lord it over people. 
to outpass people. Paul says, I don't do that. He said, you judge me by my character, by my words. My character and my words ought to give an indication as whether or not I've been with God and I walk with the Lord. See it? Very, very important. I remember years ago watching on television, one of these supernatural health and wealth guys was telling about Oh, yesterday I was sitting in a chair and Jesus came and sat down by me. And I said, hi, my friend. I mean, how (sighs) sacrilegious that really is. God isn't your pal, your buddy. Somebody up there likes me. God, he's almighty. There's a wholeness there and a reverence there. And when he took Paul in, Paul knew he was in the holy of holies of holies of holies. And he said, I don't use that as a basis upon my apostolic authority in teaching the church as its pastor. So we see Paul's heavenly experience. And then we see Paul's foreign experience of all things. Here he's been to heaven, and following his experience to heaven, what happens? Verse 7, it said, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, he just met God. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, just as lest I be exalted above measure. And with heaven comes back, bang, a thorn in the flesh. What was that thorn? You ought to read the commentaries, the ideas that people have. What was the thorn? And by the way, it wasn't just a little thorn. The word there means there was a deep, deep slash. There was a deep stick or object that pierced him. And, And the thorn, somebody said, well, he couldn't see well. He had an eye problem. He's going blind. They refer to a passage which he said, I'm writing in big print. Others think he had malaria, which would come and go with fevers, chronic headaches. Some people said he was epileptic. Some people said it was a besetting sin that he had that kept coming back in his life, and they refer to Romans 7. And we don't know what that thorn was. It may have been a wife that we hadn't heard about yet. Yeah, because we know if you remember the Sanhedrin, many people think he was. He would have had to be married. What happened to her? Maybe he died. Maybe she died. Maybe she was still, we don't know. But whatever the thorn was, it went deep into his soul, into his heart, into his life. And here he comes from heaven, and all of a sudden, there's a thorn in the flesh. And the Bible says... That thorn was a messenger of the devil. What about that? Learn from this, ladies and gentlemen. When a thorn comes in your life and my life, it always carries with it two messages. One is the message from God, which we'll see what that was for Paul. And the other is a message from evil. It's the message from the devil. And when a thorn comes... There's always two messages. It's depending on which message you want to listen to. 
The message from the devil would say, when a thorn comes, whatever form it might be, I lost my job. Uh, you, you just fill it out. I have a problem with a child. I, I have, fill it out, whatever that thorn might be. By the way, I'm glad we don't know what it is. Because you and I can fill in the blanks with your thorn and my thorn, can't we? Yeah, we've all got them. And therefore, here is a thorn in the flesh. It can be the message of the devil. What would the devil say when a thorn in the flesh comes in your life or in my life? He would say, grin and bear it. Oh, you're just grinning and bear it. He'd say, get mad at God. He was just with God. Now he's, man, get mad at God. The devil would say, do that. Or just forget about it. It's no big deal. Just forget it, forget it, forget it. See, the devil would, would operate like that. For example, take it in down earth, the practical examination. Here's a guy who is dating this gal, and he feels he's in love with her, and he thinks she's in love with him, and he proposes. And she says, no. No. Man, it breaks his heart. I don't want a show of hands here. It breaks his heart. He said, oh, me, I thought she was the one. God has turned away from me. I hate women. I'm not going to mess with women. I'm through with women. That's the message the devil would like for us to get. Or some other message from that rejection, right? But see, everything that happens to you and me, when that thorn comes, that emptiness, that void, that pain, that disaster, whatever form it might take, that thorn, the devil wants us to respond in all these different ways. How does God want us to respond? We learn exactly how God responded to the thorn of, of Paul. He said, the thorn of the flesh was given to me as a messenger of Satan. That's one message. But also a messenger of God. God tells Paul, lest you be exalted above measure. In other words, Paul, you've had these wonderful experiences. You've been in the presence of the living God in the third heaven. Unless that boasts you up too much, you get too big for yourself and too prideful. I've sent this thorn. <laughs> I've sent this thorn to keep you grounded. Pride is a big thing, folks. I love the story about them. Here's a monk who's very pious, praying 24-7, fasting, working, godly man. And Satan is looking at all his little imps, all his little devils, trying to tempt this godly man. All kind of sensual things. And they're unsuccessful. This monk, is, this monk is prayerful and godly, and, and they keep trying to tempt him. Find, and finally, Satan shows up and tells all his little devils, step aside, let me show you how to handle him. And he whispers into the ear of this very pious man, a monk, your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. My brother? They picked him over me? My brother lifted to this lofty position of Christian authority. And the devil backed up and tells his, all of his boys, he said, that's the way you handle somebody like that. Pride. Pride. God sent that thorn in the flesh of Paul to keep him from being too pumped up with all of his talent and ability and being taken right into the throne room of God. And then look what... <laughs> Paul did. He pleaded 
three times with the Lord, it might depart from me. When a thorn comes, it's not we say, well, I'm masochistic. I'm just going to get it. Going, well, more pauper. Oh, no, no. He prayed. He said, Lord, I think I'd be a better apostle. I think I'd be able to do things more, more efficiency if I didn't have this thorn. He pleaded with God three times to take the thorn away. That's what we're to do. Somebody said, well, God didn't answer his prayer. Yes, he did. He said, no. Jesus played three times in the garden. Lord, this cup, this embarrassment, this crucifixion, is there any other way? God said, God didn't answer Jesus' prayer. Yes, he did. He said, no. And then God tells Paul, as he would tell all of us when these thorns show up, he says, Jesus said to me, by the way, just a little parenthetical thing here. Paul prayed directly to Jesus. That's very unusual. There may be other times. I know only two of the occasions when somebody prayed directly to Jesus. Ephesians tells us we pray to the Father through Jesus, and Jesus gives us entree to God, remember? But here, he prayed directly to Jesus. You see that when the apostles were looking for someone to take Judas's place, they prayed exact directly to Jesus, Acts 1. And then in Acts 7, you see when, when Stephen was being stoned to death, the heavens opened, and he prayed directly to Jesus. I don't know of any other illustration. Don't hold me to that. There may be others. But here is a rare moment in which he prayed directly to Jesus, the Lord, and Jesus gave him a very clear answer. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the old acrostic. Grace is is the power of Jesus Christ here. Paul is saying, God is saying to Paul, you've got this thorn. He said, the power of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. I love that word, sufficient. Sufficient means every base is covered. Every need is handled. Everything is out there. He said, my grace is sufficient. And we look at this creative order Don't you see the sufficiency of God in all of it? Don't you see that? In every walk of life, every realm, any discipline, physics, astrophysics, life, culture, everything. His grace is sufficient in every kind of situation. It's overflowing for everybody. Sufficiency is seen even in animals. Take the kangaroo. Let me tell you something about the kangaroo. When a Little Joey is born. It's the size of a jelly bean. Did you know that? And the mother kangaroo would put that little jelly bean, that new birth, in his pouch, in her pouch. And in that pouch, they checked it time and time again. That little Joey stays for a year plus till he grows up. And that mother gives exactly the kind of milk and nourishment that little Joey needs. And all of it's different with different kinds of newborn kangaroos. I mean, the milk is different, and it's fit. It is designed exactly, precisely for that little Joey. Isn't that something? In the pouch of the mother. Start off the size of a jelly bean. The design of God, the sufficiency of God there is unbelievable. And what about a a kangaroo? Did you know a kangaroo has no natural enemies? A kangaroo can kick 
with a power about 700 foot pounds. That's the thrust of most weapons. You just don't mess with a kangaroo, folks. A kangaroo can jump over 10 feet. A kangaroo can run up to 40 miles an hour. A kangaroo, I mean, bears, lions, tigers. And if one happened to be stalking a kangaroo, you know what he does? He goes out into the water, out in the ocean, out into a lake because the kangaroo is a tremendous swimmer. And if the predator comes out there, he just goes and holds it underwater till it drowns. You know what the word kangaroo means? I don't understand you. Kangaroo, I don't understand you. And I saw that and I said, here this thorn comes and Paul is saying, kangaroo, I don't understand this thorn. I've just been to heaven. And God says, this thorn is there to keep you from being a big shot and acting like you're somebody because you have all this ability and all this giftedness. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you even with this thorn. And then he says, my strength is made powerful in you. Let me read it exactly to see what Jesus says. My grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what this story is a shorthand for? The cross. Look at the weakness of the cross. What did the weakness of the cross lead to? Your salvation and my salvation, but it led to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Weakness, strength. Without the cross, there's no resurrection. Without the cross, there's no salvation. Without the resurrection, there's no eternal life for you and for me. Weakness, strength, amazing. Then he says, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest in me. What does that mean? The power of Christ. That's the resurrection power. Rest in me is a tabernacle phrase. It means to pitch your tent with me. It means to get in the tent with Christ and Christ gets in your life, in your tent. It means to dwell in Christ. So look what's happened here. We understand a little bit my brothers and my sisters, what we said at first, which sound like a, a mystery to us, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When the thorn comes, his grace is sufficient. When I'm let down, I'll be caught up with God. And then we see the grace operating in this life on and on. And Paul just winds up this by saying, therefore, I take pleasure, listen to this, this is all of his thorns, in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress, for Christ's sake. And then there's our little phrase, all we have to take home with us. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. When the thorn comes, bam, that's when God uses us to keep us humble and uses us in ways we can't even imagine. And you know how we respond to thorns? Most of the time, sadly, oh, this thorn has come, this, this sickness has come. And by the way, in the perfect tense there, when Jesus said, 
Paul, don't pray anymore. Three times enough, you're going to have this thorn the rest of your life. And so that's in the perfect tense. Oh, it's done. It's settled. I've made my mind. Don't fool me with it anymore. It's in the perfect tense. When that comes, this gives God a chance to show off his strength in your weakness and in my weakness. So how are you handling that thorn? Whining, complaining, upset, mad, angry, grinning, buried. Why is God doing this to me? Blaming God. How, how are you and I handling our thorn? Well, if we understand those thorns come to make us weak so we can really be strong. When I'm healthy and fine and I feel good and all is in shape, you know, I pray to God, but let the bottom fall out of your life or my life. Let a thorn come in. Boy, how much closer God comes to me and how much closer I come to God. Have you noticed that? Weakness, thorns are nothing but an opportunity. Well, I'm too old or I have, oh, no, no, no. I'm too young. No, 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 no. Let me play this out for you dramatically. Sidlow Baxter is one of my mentors. I never knew him. I know him through his books. I heard a tape, and he gave a series of lectures in Charlotte, North Carolina a long time ago. But Sidlow Baxter is a brilliant, biblical scholar, theologian, powerful, powerful. Anything he's written, read it. Sidlow Baxter tells a story of a friend of his going to Australia. And the friend told him, he said, he was going to see this particular woman there. He'd heard so much about her ministry. It was unbelievable to him. So his friend went to Australia, got an appointment, went to see this woman in her house. And the woman was afflicted in ways most of us can't even imagine. When she was very young, the doctor said, you have to cut off that foot if you're to live, and then cut off another foot until finally they had to, they had to take off the legs all the way up to her trunk for her to live with this disease. And then it went to her arms and her hands, and finally they had to amputate her arms and the shoulder, arms and shoulder. And all this woman was was a trunk. She didn't have a joint in her body. And so this man said, I thought I'd go see her and encourage her and, and pray for her. And he said, when I walked in her room, he said, there was a sense of God there that I'd never felt before. And said, she had a radiant smile, just a trunk. And, he, and she'd been like that for 15 years. And then he asked her, well, how has God so used you? He knew that she had written thousands of letters, that hundreds of people had come to Christ. She had ministered to countless people from that situation. And he asked her, how has this worked? And she said, I had a carpenter friend who came and built this pad to my shoulder. It came out like this. And he built another pad over here and put a, a fountain pen in that pad. And she said, I have just been writing letters. And to write, she had to move her own body. And this man said, I saw her write, and it looked like calligraphy. It was so clean and pure and beautiful. He said, I couldn't believe it. And she had written letters 
all these years, 15, 16 years to people, leading them to Christ, answering questions. It was a magnificent story. And then he looked at her and said, well, how did this all begin? And she said, and by the way, her wall was full of scripture and prayer and poems and words all over around her. But how did you do this? She said, it's not any big deal. She said, I just read where Jesus said, if you believe in me, out of me will pour streams of living water. She said, I just believed. How are you using your thorn? How can you and I use our thorn? Hmm. The principle is always true. When I am weak, then I am 